Well, I don't lead this church on my own. We've got six elders. Four of them are pastors at our church, Brandon, Mark, uh, Barry, my, myself. And then we've got two lay elders, Kobe and, 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 uh, and Mitchell. And we could not be more different, right? All of us are, are, are different. We've all got different backgrounds and different personalities. Uh, I mean, we, we've got, uh, uh, surprisingly, Pastor Mark has got a Church of Christ background. You probably never think that, right? Um, Barry and Brandon have more charismatic backgrounds. I've got a Baptist background. We've got all kinds of different church backgrounds. We, we've got different personalities. Uh, some of us like to golf. Others of us hate golf. Some of us like to fish. Others of us hate fishing. Uh, some of us are very handy. I'm the one that's not very handy. Okay. Almost everybody else is pretty handy. Okay. I'm not, I'm not very, I'm not very handy. Okay. So, so we're, we're very different. Um, I've, I've worked with Mark and Barry and Brandon now for about 13 years. We all serve together in another church called Experience Life here in Lubbock. We, we serve here together uh, now, most of us, for uh, nearly four years. Barry's been here for a little over a year. We, we've all been together. We know each other very well. We're, we're, we're all very different. We're, we've got different gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has gifted us all in different ways. We've got different personalities. Some of us are introverts and some of us are, are more extroverted. We've got different Myers-Briggs assessments. Okay, over the, we, we've done Myers-Briggs. Uh, we, we've all done the DISC assessment. We, we're all very different on the DISC assessment. We've done the Winnie the Pooh characters over the years. We're all different Winnie the Pooh characters, right? Uh, we've got different working geniuses. We've done strength fund. We've done all of these different personality exams. We've done Enneagram, okay? We're all different. We've got all different results all over the map when it comes to our, our pastors here, to, to our elders. We're all different. And, and yet, Brandon, Mark, and Barry and I have worked together for over 13 years now. You, you know, in that time, I know this is going to shock you. We've hurt each other's feelings. I know you would think, no, there's no way. You're a pastor. You could never do that. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, no, that's not true. Okay. We, we've, we've hurt each other's feelings. We, we've had to confess things to each other and forgive one another and repent of sin and things like that to each other. We have hurt each other's feelings. So, so with all of these different backgrounds and stories and, and giftings and personality assessments, right. And all these hurts and offenses over, over 13 years, you can probably imagine there's been some disagreements and there has been, there's been some small disagreements. There's been some large disagreements. And yet in spite of all of those things, we love each other. We work together. We're on mission together. We pray for one another. We're there for one another. We, we love each other and we're there for, in spite of all of those differences, we love each other and we're still working together and on mission together. It's, it's, really, it's really a miracle when you think about it. After all that we've been through, that we're still, we're still on the same page and we still love each other. We still work together. I, I, I tell you that because the passage that we're looking at today looks at 12 men that Jesus chose to follow him and they couldn't be more different. They've got different backgrounds. They've, they've got different personality assessments, if you will. They've got different giftings, right? Some of them are introverts. Some of them are extroverts, right? They're, they're all kinds of, of different. And it's really a miracle that some of them didn't kill each other. 
But their mutual love for Jesus developed this community amongst them that under normal circumstances shouldn't be there and wouldn't have been there. But because of their mutual love for Jesus, they followed Jesus, they did life together and they followed Jesus together and they were on mission together and they continued, even after Jesus left, they continued to minister and to work together in this community of faith. We're, we're in the middle of a series where we're going through the gospel of Luke verse by verse. And we study the scripture here at the City Church verse by verse because we just believe that it, it just develops a deeper sense of faith and trust and love and, and mission when you study the full counsel of God's word and you study the scripture verse by by verse. We, we take the Bible very seriously here. And so we're, we're studying the scripture verse by verse right now. We're studying the gospel of Luke verse by verse. And, and in our hope here, our hope in the gospel, our study of the gospel of Luke is that we'll all fall in love with Jesus all over again. And, and some of us will fall in love with Jesus for the very first time. That's our hope. That's our that's our prayer. And we're not just studying the gospel of Luke in here. We're studying the gospel of Luke in our city groups. They're going to talk about these same verses this week. We're going to talk about the gospel of Luke this week in our daily devotionals. They're going to break down these same verses Monday through Friday on our app under the Bible study tab. And then we're inviting you to study the gospel of Luke, challenging you to study the gospel of Luke as a family. And we offer the table talk under the Bible study tab on our app so that you and your family can discuss what you're learning together in the gospel of Luke. Cause I just want to remind you again, your kids and our students are walking through these same verses and talking about these same things. And the hope is we're creating a common conversation around a table, a lunch table, maybe here in a couple of hours when I'm done, right? Or I'm just kidding. Don't get worried. All right. No, around a lunch table or, or a dinner table. Okay. We're, we're hoping that you're going to discuss these things using, using that table talk that's on our app and you can study the gospel of Luke together as a family. We, we are serious about the Bible here because, because we believe the Bible is still God's word today. At the City Church, we have what's called the City Seven. The City Seven are seven foundational truths to the Christian faith that remind us of what we believe and why we believe these things. And we teach these to our kids, to our students, and to you. We go over them in groups. It's in the family, it's in the table talk. We go over one truth a week as a church family to memorize these things and hopefully then remember what we believe and, and why we believe these seven foundational truths to the Christian faith. And this week is number seven. Number seven says this, how can I trust that the Bible is still God's word today? It's an important question. How can we trust that the Bible that you and I have is still God's word to this day? Well, I trust the Bible is still God's word today because Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he was God and then said his words would never pass away. God told us that we would always have his words, his words. He promised it and he's come through on his promise. And here's how he came through on his promise. Through the Holy Spirit, God inspired the writing of the scripture, determined the canon of scripture. That, that means what, what books were considered scripture and then what books were not authoritative and, and were not scripture. So, so determined the canon of scripture and protected the copying of scripture throughout the ages so that we might know him and worship him to this day. Did you know when you compare the present day scripture, you could take almost any uh, popular modern, 
modern translation that we've got and you compare it to some of the earliest manuscripts that we have that date within a hundred years of the New Testament authors actually writing the gospels and writing, pinning these letters. When you take what we've got today to some of the earliest manuscripts that we've got, and we've got thousands of them, by the way, the text is 99.5% scholars say textually accurate. This is the most accurate ancient document on the face of the planet. Why? How is that even possible after all of the copying that's been done? Because Jesus said we would always have his words and his words would never pass away. And so God, who by the way, creates something out of nothing and raises the dead, promised us that we would have his word and he's come through on his promise. Listen, (laughs) if resurrections are possible, And my guess is you're here because you either believe that's possible because God rose, you believe that God rose Jesus from the grave, or you're not too sure what to think about that, but but you're, but you're willing to hear, you're willing to listen, you're willing to learn and to study. You're at least considering the option. That's what the whole Christian faith is based on, that Jesus rose from the grave. If resurrections are possible, then all bets are off. This is easy for God. God can get us his word if resurrections are possible. And as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, which means anything's possible for God. He can get us his word. So we are serious about the Bible here. We study it verse by verse. We're studying the gospel of Luke verse by verse because we believe it is still God's word today. And today we find ourselves in Luke chapter six, verses 12 through 19. You can follow along with us. The verses will be on the screen, but I'd invite you to open our app and uh, select message notes and follow along with us there. The verses and the points and everything will be there. Jesus has already begun his ministry of preaching. He's performing miraculous signs and wonders to verify who he is to prove that he is the son of God, to prove that what he is saying is the way, the truth and the life. He's begun to have some controversies with this group called the Pharisees. We've seen that over the last two or three weeks. Now he's choosing some of his followers that he garnered to be apostles. We'll talk about that here in just a second. And we're going to see today, starting today, this contrast between the crowd of people that are following Jesus and are interested in Jesus And the the difference and the contrast between the crowd, a fan of Jesus and a follower or a disciple of Jesus. We're going to begin to see that today. And and next week and in the following weeks, we're, we're going to see the differences between the way the world operates and the upside down kingdom of God the upside down values of God. We're gonna begin to see that here over the next few weeks. And today we're gonna see the upside down nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Not, Not just someone in the crowd, but someone who has committed their life to Jesus. We're gonna begin to see the differences. We're gonna begin to see a contrast. We're gonna begin to see that fork in the road of what it looks like to be just one in the crowd, a fan, and an actual follower, a disciple, what genuine faith and love for God really, really look like. And so let's look at Luke chapter six, verse 12 through 19. Would you stand as we read the word of God? And Mark Cortina's one of my best friends for about 13 years is gonna come and read today. Well, like you said, my name is Mark Cortinas. Um, I have a two daughters, Sophia, who's 10, I mean, 15, sorry, and Sienna, who's 10. And I've had the privilege of serving on the finance team for a while and uh, as a greeter before. So here we go. 
One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. Amen. Thank you, Mark. You may be seated. So you can see these three different groups, the the crowds that have formed that are coming from all over the place to to hear Jesus and to be healed by him. You you see the followers of Jesus that that Jesus has garnered already. And then you see these apostles that Jesus chooses from among his followers. And it says he designates them as apostles. So so let's talk about these these three crowds. First of all, we're going to talk about Jesus's followers and his apostles that he designates. So, so a disciple, the Greek word for disciple is methetes. And, and that simply means a disciplined follower. In, in terms of Christianity, it was called a disciplined follower of the way. That's what Christianity was called in these early days of the church. A disciplined follower of the way. That was a methetes. That was a disciple. There was an ancient Jewish blessing that went like this. May you, as a disciple, be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Here's what that meant. It meant as a disciple that the blessing was you were blessed if you could follow your teacher, if you could stay close enough to your rabbi that when they walked along a dirt path, the dust that they kicked up would go all over you. And so the blessing went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, that as a disciple, you would follow your leader, you would follow your teacher, your rabbi so closely that the dust that they kicked up on that path would cover you. That was a disciple. The word apostle in Greek means this, a representative invested with the full authority of the one who sent him. A representative invested with the full authority of the one who sent him. So Jesus chooses from among his followers, from among his disciples, his methetes, 12 apostles, representatives with the full authority of the one who sent him. In Christian theology, we say an apostle meets two criteria. They were with Jesus, they saw Jesus risen from the grave, and they were commissioned by Jesus himself. Now, now Jesus has commissioned all of us as his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. But, but these 12 were with Jesus, they saw Jesus risen from the grave, and they were commissioned by Jesus himself. Jesus individually and personally designated them as an apostle, an authorized representative of Jesus Christ himself. And so it makes sense that these apostles then became the authorized leaders of the New Testament 
church, of the early church. It makes sense then that these 12 became the primary preachers of the new covenant gospel about Jesus, the good news about Jesus. It makes sense then that it's these 12 that Jesus says in John chapter 14 through 17 that the Holy Spirit's gonna come and remind you Yes, all of us, you, but specifically you 12. The Holy Spirit's gonna come and remind you of all the things that I've said. The Holy Spirit's gonna come and guide you into all truth. And then my church, my people are, are going to have my words because my words are never gonna pass away. You see, these 12 would be the authorized leaders to be ones that would write the words and pen the words of, of scripture that we, that we have here in the New Testament. Or in the case of Mark, who was like a, secretary or someone who followed along with Peter or a Luke who was with Paul. All of the books of the New Testament we see have apostolic authority. They're coming from an apostolic source, an authorized representative. So here's what you got to understand about an apostle. There's a difference between the office of apostle and then people today whom we might say have the gifting of apostleship. So, so let, let me break this down for you real quick before, before we move on. First of all, in, in the terms of the office of an apostle, there are no more apostles. There, there, there are no more apostles because an apostle is someone who has seen Jesus physically risen from the grave and been sent by Jesus himself. So, so that ended in, in this day. That ended with these 12 and, and, and Judas would end up being replaced by Matthias. And then we have the addition of Paul because Paul saw Jesus risen from the grave and Jesus commissioned him himself. So these apostles hold that office of apostle. That's different from someone today, we might say has the gifting or the ability of like apostleship. What we're saying about someone like that is that they're a pioneer missionary evangelist. They're gonna go into new areas and share the gospel and plant churches. Or sometimes we say that about a church planter who is entrepreneurial in, their, in, their, in, in the way they're wired and they're able to go and start a brand new work from the ground up where no one has worked before. So we might say they have the gift of apostleship in the line of the apostles, but, but not with the same authority and it's not the same office. That office is done. There are no more apostles in the terms of this office. So these 12 are chosen by Jesus to be his apostles. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. No, no way, shape or form. If this was an NFL draft, this is a terrible draft. This is like picking a wide receiver with no arms and legs, okay? This is a bad bad draft. Okay. James can't remember anything Jesus says. He's always like, uh, I don't remember. Let's just go and talk with, with Jesus. Let's go back with him. Right. Peter is starting fights with Jesus. No, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. And, and Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Okay. This is a who's who of misfits. All right. This is the bad news bears. Okay. And at the same time, this list of apostles encourages me because as we get to know them, we're going to get to a little bit. We're going to get to know a little bit about each one today. As you get to know them, number one, I think you're going to see yourself in several of them. And number two, we're going to see that in spite of their backgrounds, in spite of their personality, in spite of the brokenness that's in their lives, in spite of the things that Jesus even knows is yet to come, 
He chooses them anyways. And so it's encouraging that Jesus chooses this band of misfits to follow him, to be his apostles. Not, not because of anything they had done to deserve it, it's quite the opposite. He chooses them by grace to be his apostles. So let's, let's look at each disciple, let's look at each apostle rather, and let's, let's get, we're gonna get the Myers-Briggs, we're gonna get the disc assessment, okay? We're gonna, we're gonna see the Winnie the Pooh character, if you will, for, for each one, and maybe you'll see yourself in some of these apostles. Number one is Peter. Peter is a strong, passionate leader. He's an out front kind of guy. He's got his sword out when someone comes to arrest Jesus, right? Cutting off the ear of the soldier. Peter has moments of great faith and then he has moments of great failure while he's following Jesus. And even after Jesus is risen and the Holy Spirit comes and Peter becomes a great leader in the church, Peter would continue to have moments of great faith and boldness. He, he, was, he was scared and hiding after Jesus uh, was, was arrested and, and being crucified and denying that he even knew Jesus. But in Acts chapter two, he receives the Holy Spirit. He stands up and he's preaching the word with great boldness. And the same crowd that he was denying Christ to, he's saying, you are the ones that put Jesus Christ on the cross. You are the ones that put the son of God on the cross. He's filled with, with boldness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Moments of great fear, moments of great fearlessness, moments of great faithfulness, moments of great unfaithfulness. And we would see this all throughout even the book of Acts where Peter will sometimes still continue to get it wrong. Moments of great faithfulness, moments of great unfaithfulness. Andrew, Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. Think about the boy with Philo's and two fishes. Andrew is the one that gets this boy and brings him up to Jesus. There's some Greeks in John chapter 12 who are wanting to talk with Jesus. They come to Andrew and Andrew is the one that takes them to Jesus. When Andrew meets Jesus, he immediately goes and gets his brother, Peter, and says, Peter, you got to meet this guy. You've got to meet Jesus. Andrew loves introducing people to Jesus like an usher, right? Like an usher, just taking people to Jesus. James, not James the brother of Jesus and not James the less, this is James that referred to as James the greater. James was nicknamed by Jesus along with his brother as the sons of thunder mainly because of James, because James had this explosive nature. He asked some Samaritans one time about a place for Jesus to stay and they refused. And James upset, mad, goes back to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them? And Jesus is like, James, buddy, no, no, that's not why, that's not why I've come. Okay. We're not going to call down fire and consume these people and burn them alive. Right. All right. That, that's James though. Let's call down fire from heaven and consume them and kill them. It's James that says to Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom one day, can I sit on your left? Can James and or John and I sit on your left and on your right? A very bold, bold and out of place request of James that he makes of Jesus. James is passionate. James is fiercely loyal. James is in the inner circle with James or with John and Peter. It's James that Herod kills thinking 
that if he could just kill James, he could stop the early explosive growth, growth of the early church. Herod's thinking, I gotta, I gotta stop this. And what does he think to do? I'm gonna go kill James. Because if I can kill James, then we can stop this movement. James was a strong leader. He had a strength of character about him. John, his brother, on the opposite end of the spectrum, rarely speaks. The little brother, he's the author, he's the writer, he's the deep thinker. John was deeply moved that Christ loved him. He referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was overwhelmed by the love of God found in Jesus. The most profound theological truth, the deepest theological truth to John would have been Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's as deep as you could possibly get to John. The most profound, the deepest theological truth anyone could ever come up with. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me. That, that, was, that was John. John was probably a crier. He's one that would probably talk through his tears as he talked about the love of God. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> when everyone else flees the scene of the cross, John stays behind with the women. They continue to mourn the death of Jesus. John's the last one to die. But before he dies on the island of Patmos, he has a vision from God of heaven and the return of Jesus that he pins would become the book of Revelation. With John's death, the apostolic period ends. Philip, Philip literally means lover of horses. Philip would have been everyone's best friend. He was always mentioned with, with other people. When the Greeks that I referred to uh, earlier want to meet Jesus, they first of all come to Philip, then Philip goes against Andrew, and then they go and take them to Jesus. When Philip meets Jesus, he goes and gets Nathaniel, who's also called Bartholomew. We'll get him to him here in just a second. But Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, Bartholomew, and here's what he says, we found him. We found the one the law and the Psalms and the prophets have spoken of. We found him. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. You've got to come and meet him. So Philip goes against Nathaniel. Philip loved people. He would have probably been very hospitable. He would have been probably the most accessible, the most approachable because he would have been an outgoing introvert. People would have been naturally drawn to him, right? Philip would have been the talker in your class, right? That won't stop talking. And you're like, Philip, you got to stop talking. And he just keeps talking, right? Anybody got a Philip at home? They don't ever stop talking, right? Philip in your classroom, maybe they don't ever stop. Yeah. Hands are going up. People are looking at each other. I, I see you. Okay. You got Phillips. You got some Phillips in, in your home. Some of you are like, I'm not Philip at all. I, that is not me. I don't, I'm not an extrovert. Don't want to be around people. People don't really like me. I'm not that accessible. I'm not that approachable. And I like it that way. Right. But, but Philip would have been the most accessible. He would have been very approachable. He loved being around people. People loved him. Next is Bartholomew. He was also known as Nathaniel. Bartholomew means son of the plowman. Bartholomew was a farm boy. Any farm boys here? Okay, that's Bartholomew. Bartholomew was a farm boy. Bartholomew is the one that's sitting below this tree and he's having this vision, this dream of Jacob's ladder. 
We don't have time to dive into all that, but he's having this dream. He's having this vision of Jacob's ladder. And Jesus sees him and, and knows what's happening. And you'll see here in just a second why that's important. But, but Philip comes for him. Philip coming to Bartholomew saying, we found him, we've met him. You gotta come and meet Jesus. Philip comes for him while he's sitting at this tree, thinking about Jacob's ladder and what this must mean. And, and here's, what, here's what Bartholomew says to Philip. Nah, sounds like a farm boy, right? Nah, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. So now I'm not going, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't worry about me. Nathaniel Bartholomew was critical. He was a critical thinker. And so Jesus sees him coming. He eventually comes with Nathaniel, gives in. Eventually gives in to Philip. He goes to see Jesus and Jesus sees him coming. And he says, there's nothing phony about this man. He's a farm boy. What you see is what you get. In other words, Bartholomew is going to tell you what he thinks about everything, right? He's critical. He's a critical thinker. He, he's not going to candy coat it, right? He, he's, he's going to tell you his opinion. And so it's better to just not ask him his opinion. Why? Because he's going to tell you what he thinks. That dress is ugly. Yes, you do look fat. No, your baby is not cute. Okay. It looks like a possum, right? Okay. Bartholomew is going to tell you what he thinks. What you see is what you get. There's nothing phony about this man. He's going to tell you everything that he's thinking. Bartholomew says to Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus says, I, I, I saw you. I saw you and put in that tree. Bartholomew's like, how, how do you know me? Nothing, what, why, why are you saying there, there's nothing phony in me? You don't know me. Jesus says, no, I saw you up under that tree thinking about Jacob's ladder. Jesus would later explain to him, I'm, I'm the ladder that'll get you to and from heaven. Bartholomew loved truth. He loved facts. He wasn't into existential experience, no, as a critical thinker, he wanted truth, he wanted facts, he wanted reason. And he had no problems telling you when you were wrong. Hey, Bartholomew, here's what I'm thinking. Nah, man, that's, you know, that's not right, that's not right. He's the type that would incinerate you and enjoy it all at the same time, right? That's, that's Bartholomew. Next is Matthew. Matthew never says anything, not once. He's a writer, he's humble. He's a tax collector. We said this a couple of weeks ago about Matthew as a traitor to his Jewish people, he would have been considered the worst of sinners. This is Matthew. And so Matthew, we get a picture of someone who's just appreciative that he has been forgiven by Jesus and that he's allowed to even be in the presence of Jesus. Matthew's the kind that would say, how could God ever love me? Matthew is the example of someone that if God could forgive him, then he could forgive anyone. If God could forgive a sinner like him, if Jesus could call a sinner like him to follow him, then that means God could forgive anyone. Here's, here's what's so interesting to me about Matthew and the way that, that God will use your, your, your story and, and completely turn it around and redeem it. The way that God will turn your mess and, and, into a message, right? I, I love this. 
Matthew, as a tax collector, would have recorded payments. Like an accountant, he would have recorded the payments and the debts that the Jewish people would have owed to their Roman overlords. He would have recorded those payments like an accountant. And then what does God end up using Matthew to do? Write a gospel account of the Son of God paying your fine for sin and erasing your debt before God. Isn't that wild? To see the way God can take your story, your brokenness, and bring beauty even from the ashes. That was, that was Matthew. Matthew wasn't a seeker of God, God came to him. How, how many of you weren't seeking God? But God sought you and he did a miracle in, you, in your life and he spoke to you, he revealed himself to you and he drew you to himself. That's, that's Matthew, he wasn't a seeker of God. God came to him and rescued him out of his sin. Next is Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap as a doubter. He wasn't really a doubter. He was just stubbornly consistent. Let, let, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. When, when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, all the other disciples are like, no, no, let's, let's not go to Jerusalem. Uh, you're gonna die there, Jesus. Let, let's not go there. And, and here's what Thomas says. No, let's go with him so that we can die too. Right, that, that's Thomas. We, we chose to follow him. Um, he's going to Jerusalem. We're gonna follow him. If it means dying, that's what's gonna happen. So let's, let's go die. All right, let's all, let's all go die. That's what we got. That's what we signed up for is to go die with Jesus. That's Thomas. But at the same time, if Jesus is dead and not risen, then a Thomas is going to say, I want no part of this. When, when all of the disciples are gathered together, all of Jesus' followers are gathered together after Jesus dies and, and they're hiding together and they're still meeting together. The gospels say Thomas is nowhere to be found. Because to Thomas, if this is just another dead leader, then he's not really worth following. He said he was going to rise. Thomas would say it like this. He told us he was gonna die. That's why I was willing to go die with him. But he told us he was going to rise from the grave. And so if you've got a dead savior, if you've got a dead Lord, that, that is no Lord, that is no savior to Thomas. And so Thomas is like, I want no part of this. If Christ has not been raised, then as Paul would say, our faith was useless and it is useless. But they would tell Thomas, no, he's risen. You've got to come and see, come and see for yourself. And Thomas would say, well, if I could, if I could touch the wounds in his hands and, and, and the hole in his side, if I can touch his hands and I can touch his side, then I will believe. You see, Thomas was intellectually honest. He was philosophically consistent. If Jesus is who he says he is, then let's go die with him. If he's not who he says he is, and he's not worth any of our time. Our faith is useless. See, to Thomas, there's no fence sitting. It's you're all in or you're all out. Thomas would be a Revelation 3 kind of guy. Hey, be cold or hot. But this lukewarm business in the middle this apathetic lifestyle in the middle, this casual Christianity, this American casual Christianity that kind of sits in the middle, beat, that, that's gross, that's sick. And it makes no sense. You see, Thomas is intellectually honest. He's philosophically consistent. You're all in or you're all out. There, there's no in between with Jesus. There's no fence sitting with Jesus. And Thomas would prove it by taking the gospel to the ends of the known earth at the time, to the furthest places in India. Thomas would become the patron saint of India. 
See, to Thomas, there's, there's no fence sitting. There's no in between. You're, you're all in or you're all out. You're cold or you're hot. There's no such thing as this lukewarm Christianity. There's no such thing as sitting on the fence. If Christ has been raised, then we're all in. Let's go die with him. We're gonna follow him regardless of the cost. If he hadn't been raised, then we're wasting our time. There's no in between. There is no fence sitting. Thomas probably wasn't that well liked because he's all in or he's all out. There's no in between to Thomas. Next is James the Less. James the Less, not in stature, it's just meaning that he's not James the Greater and he's not the brother of Jesus. James the Less has no quotes, he has no works, he has no position other than he was designated as an apostle, he has no power, he does what he's asked. Most theologians would say that means he's probably shy, he's probably an introvert, he's willing to serve wherever you need him behind the scenes, but don't put him up on a stage don't ask him to pray out loud, right? Don't, don't ask him to do anything like that. He's probably shy. He's probably an introvert. That's why we don't see a lot from James the less, but he was willing to do whatever needed to be done behind the scenes. Next is Simon the Zealot. Zealot is referring to Simon's Jewish denomination. His sect or his brand of Judaism was Jewish nationalism. As a Jewish nationalist, as a zealot, the zealots were willing to burn it down in order to restore the kingdom and the glory to Israel. They were violent men. They were willing to take up arms and fight against their Roman overlords. They were guerrilla bands, militias that would kill Romans. They were insurrectionists. They were people of the sword. They were like kamikaze pilots, afraid of nothing and willing to kill anyone that got in their way, whether it be a Roman or even a Jewish tax collector that was a traitor to their people. Zealots were violent. Next is Judas Thaddeus or Judas son of James. There's one verse written about Judas Thaddeus in John chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. Judas Thaddeus says this to Jesus, you're disclosing yourself to us and not to the whole world. What about everyone else? I love the heart of Judas Thaddeus. You're revealing yourself to us, but Jesus, there's so many people out there who've never heard the good news about Jesus. It reminded me of a quote from David Platt, a pastor, author in our country, who said that to a Christian, the idea of an unreached people group must be untenable to us. That if we really believe what we say we believe, then the idea of unreached people groups must be untenable. It should break our hearts and we should be willing to do whatever it takes to get to the gospel, to the unreached people groups that live on our planet, of which there are about 40% of the world's population living in an unreached people group, which means this, they will be born, someone will be born, live and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. And David Platt said, that must be absolutely untenable to us. It was untenable to Judas Thaddeus. What about everyone else who's never heard? I love his heart. And then finally is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. His name literally means praise of God. But Judas Iscariot would end up betraying Jesus. 
Judas Iscariot's referring to the place he was from. He's from the South, which meant in, in this context, he would have been very well educated. So he was the money keeper. He would have been viewed as the educated religious man in the group, very pious. And so the rest of the disciples, or the rest of the apostles, they don't really see it coming. It would have been like, no, not Judas. Judas is the one. No, it couldn't have been him. No, for sure. It definitely couldn't be Judas. But Judas had been skimming money for quite a while now. Judas turned on Jesus and decided to betray him when Jesus said he was going to the cross. When Judas realized that Jesus was going to die, that Jesus was predicting his own death, Judas got disillusioned. Judas expected social, financial, and political blessings as a result of following Jesus. Anybody else ever been there before? Thinking that because you follow Jesus, social, political, financial blessings should follow you just because you follow Jesus? Maybe you've been upset with God before, blaming God when you don't get the social, political, or financial blessing you think you deserve. That's, that's the Judas in us. So Judas is disillusioned. He continues to follow Jesus, but he's there for the wrong reasons. He's leading a duplicitous life. He's chosen to betray Jesus. And if you have ever wondered why, why Judas, Jesus, if you knew Judas was going to do this, why, why choose Judas? I was studying this week and, and, I, and I read from some of John Calvin's writings. John Calvin was a, a Protestant Reformation theologian and John Calvin asked the same question. Why Judas? Why would Jesus have chosen Judas? And, and John Calvin in some old English basically says for two reasons. One, he says to warn church leaders like me. That if you abuse your office, if you abuse that, that position, you will fall and it will hurt. So Calvin said, Jesus chose Judas. These are some of the reasons. We, don't, we obviously don't know all the reasons, but, but he believes these are some of the reasons to warn church leaders like me. And, and secondly, then to comfort the church to comfort the church knowing that there are going to be leaders who rise up. There are going to be leaders that fall because they mess up or because they abuse that office and they're going to fall, but the church does not rest on one leader or even a few leaders. The church is going to be built by Jesus and it's going to continue to go on. It's going to continue to multiply because of Jesus, not because of leaders. God chooses to use leaders, but when those leaders don't honor God, God just raises up new leaders. I'm sure most of us have been burned by, abused, burned, led astray by a Christian leader a time or two in our lifetime. And Calvin said, look, look at Judas. Jesus chose Judas. One, as a comfort that your faith, that this church is not built on one person, but two, it's an encouragement to the church because those leaders that have hurt you, have led you astray, those false teachers that have abused you, they will be held accountable. God is not overlooking their abuse of that office, his, their dishonoring of God, and God will bring them down. There will be consequences. So that's Judas Iscariot. And these 12 apostles, we see half of them are introverts, half of them are extroverts. 
There's some that are religious, some that are really not religious. Some are church kids, some are street kids, some are blue collar, some are white collar, some are activist in nature, some are pacifist in their nature. And yet Jesus chooses all 12 of these men to follow him, to do life together and to be on mission together in one faith community. It's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus would choose these 12 so wildly different to follow him together, like, like a family. And so now that we've got a picture of the disciples and, and, and the apostles specifically, let's look in 17 to, through 19 at the crowd, the fans of Jesus. What are they there for? It says that they're coming from everywhere to hear him and to be healed. So, so the crowd, the fan of Jesus is looking for something from Jesus. And, and listen, we all start here. We all start here. Listening, hearing, and wanting God or wanting Jesus to do something for us. They all came listening because they wanted to hear him, but they also wanted him to heal them, right? So, so they come wanting something from Jesus. They come listening to, to learn. And then at the same time, they're, they're wanting something from Jesus. This is a fan. This is what it looks like to be in the crowd. And we all start here. Listening, learning, maybe even wanting something from God to fix our mess or to bless us in some way. This is where we all start out and that's okay. But here's what I want you to see, that Jesus is calling people from the crowd, fans of him to become his follower. And that's the same call to you and I today. For fans of Jesus, for people in the crowd, we all start there to become followers of Jesus. So I wanna talk with you three things, three contrasting ideas and thoughts about what it looks like to be a follower versus a fan. Number one, followers are committed to a person, fans are committed to a product. Followers are committed to a person, fans are committed to a product. Did you know, notice Jesus' call to his disciples is to be with him. It's to follow him. That's, that's the call. It's a call to a relationship with a person. It's an invitation to be with Jesus, not a system, not a program, not a product. It's an invitation into a relationship with Jesus. We're not called to a new set of rules. We're not called to a new system, a new routine, a new religion. No, Jesus is inviting his disciples, his followers to follow him. It's invitation into a relationship with Jesus. Listen, if you're in the crowd and you've been in the crowd and you've been a fan for years and years and years now, you haven't made the move from a fan to being a follower, then, then I would say, we all, we all start out there, but, but here's what I would tell you. Then coming to church is the lamest, weirdest, most useless use of your time that you could possibly get. The invitation is into a relationship with Jesus, not into a new routine, not into a religion, not into a set of rules. It's an invitation to be in relationship with a person. And so Jesus is calling fans, even, even today, he's calling fans in the crowd today to become followers, inviting them into a relationship, not into 
some new weekly religion where you show up for a service and check off a box. That's just weird. You're invited into a new relationship and some of you are here and you've never entered into that relationship with Jesus before. Maybe you've been in the routine, you've been going to church, you've been checking off all the boxes, you've been doing all the religious outward show, but you've never given your life to Jesus. You've been a fan, but you haven't become a follower because you haven't given your life to Jesus yet. And some of you are here, you've never given your life to Jesus. Today is your day, now is your time. Give your life to Jesus, to the King, to the God who came and died in your place for your sin, paying the fine for your sin so that you could be forgiven of your sin, made right with God and know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. You're invited into a relationship with this Jesus. Give your life to him today, jump on our app, Fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. And here's the great news. When you give your life to Jesus, you get Jesus. That's what you get. Not a product, not a system. You get a person. And to Matthew, that was all he needed. I get Jesus. That's more than enough for me. I don't need anything else. Secondly, followers are committed to allowing, fans are committed to harboring. Followers are committed to allowing, fans are committed to harboring. Here's what, here's what Paul said in Colossians chapter three. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And the, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Paul says to be in this community of faith, it's going to take allowance. It's going to take patience. It's going to take forgiveness. Followers are committed to allowing. Fans are committed to harboring. Jesus's choice of disciples, of apostles, it's so interesting if he's trying to create this unified body that's bound together, that honors each other, forgives each other, worships together, isn't on mission together. These zealots that we were talking about earlier would result to violence, to kidnapping and murdering Romans and Jews they suspected of being loyal to Rome. So if it wasn't for their common devotion and love for Jesus, Simon would have definitely murdered Matthew, the tax collector. That's how wildly different and opposed these two guys were. And yet Jesus called both of them to follow him. Matthew and Simon would have had completely different ways of doing things. They would have led completely different churches. It would be like today, a Christian nationalist and a very progressive liberal Christian going to church together and loving each other and being on mission together in spite of all of their radically different thoughts and views on things. This is the love of Christ. This is Christian community. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This decision, this commitment to follow Jesus is our new primary identity and everything else takes a back seat and is informed by this decision to follow Jesus. Third, followers are committed to giving, fans, are committed to receiving. Followers of Jesus are committed to giving. 
Fans of Jesus are committed to receiving. The crowd show up wanting something from Jesus and we all start there. But the crowd's faithfulness is going to depend on what they receive, what they get. Jesus would say it's more blessed to give than to receive. A follower, a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus because he's got Jesus, because he loves Jesus. Followers are willing to sacrifice. Fans are not willing to sacrifice. Fans turn away when the message gets harder. And when the message got harder, many people in the crowd turned away from Jesus and Jesus turned to his disciples and he said this, are you gonna walk away from me too? And I love what Peter said. Peter said, no, we don't have anywhere else to go. You have the words of life. We're following you. We're with you, Jesus, regardless of the cost. We're with you, Jesus, not because of what we get, not because of what we receive or, or don't receive. We're in it for you, Jesus. And so disciples, followers of Jesus are willing to, are willing to sacrifice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic Christian book called The Cost of Discipleship said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. So while fans come and see, followers come and die. That's what Jesus said. If you're gonna follow me, you're gonna pick up your cross. You're gonna follow me. You're gonna come and die. We all start out here, come and see. But here's what I want you to see today. Jesus has so much more for you and it's found right here. This is the way you were designed to do this life. This is why you're on this plan, is to come and die and follow Jesus. Jesus said, whatever you give up for my sake, you will find life in me. Whatever you give up, whatever you give up for my sake, come and die, take, pick up your cross, follow me, and you will truly find life. If you try to hold on to your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you will give up your life for my sake, come and die, then you will find life. Jesus would say, this is where life is found. This is the life of a disciple. You come, you come and die. One theologian I said, or I read this week said this, following Jesus is a death sentence with a resurrection promise. It's a death sentence with a resurrection promise. And listen, every one of these 12 apostles believed that. And we know that because each one gave their life as a martyr, dying in horrific ways because they, they got Jesus and because they were committed to telling the world about Jesus. They were willing to die, to pay whatever they had to pay, give whatever they had to give so that others might know the great news of the gospel. Following Jesus is a death sentence with a resurrection promise. And Jesus said, this is real life. You wanna find life? Come and follow me. Come and die to yourself. Come and die to your ways and follow me. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. God, that we would hear you calling us out of the crowd. God, you would hear us calling, calling us away from being fans and into being followers of Jesus today. Disciplined followers of the way. 
disciplined followers of our our teacher, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our our Rabbi, disciplined followers of Jesus. And, And so God, I pray that today your spirit would call us to follow you so closely that the dust of Jesus begins to cover us. We begin to look like him and talk like him and sound like him and love like him. And so God, I pray that today your spirit as it calls us to come and die. God would at the same time, speak to our hearts that this is where real life is found. That this invitation is for our joy, it's for our good, it's for our best, it's for our flourishing, to die to ourselves, to die to our way and to follow Jesus. And so God, I pray that today some fans will become followers. Jesus' name, amen.